Uh, Our first scripture reading is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruits of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This morning's gospel reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please join me in a prayer. O gracious God, bless us on this day as we consider all your gifts, especially the gift of your divine Spirit that calls us to be eternally present now. The Word of the Lord. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Another way to put that is living in the now, now. Living in the eternal now.
With that in mind, I want to talk just for a second about exclamation marks. How do you use exclamation marks? How have you in letters or in essays, if you're a high school student, how do you use this uh, tool of grammar? Exclamation marks are a function that help to denote exclamation, obviously. Exclamation marks are used to express by the definition excitement. Exclamation marks are sometimes function as a way to express surprise, astonishment, and delight. How do you use exclamation marks? How have you experienced exclamation marks? It's interesting, our brothers and sisters who speak the Spanish language... And I do occasionally, but not very well. But I appreciate the fact that when they use exclamation marks in writing, they demonstrate them at the beginning of a sentence and also at the end. It's an upside-down exclamation mark at the beginning of the sentence. It's a way for the reader to clue in, pay attention. There's about to be something surprising. There's about to be something delightful. There's about to be something that expresses astonishment. I wonder if we were to use our exclamation marks in that fashion, if that would change our letter-writing correspondence, if that would change our dialogue in public discourse. This past week, as I've been uh, fine-tuning into the debates in Washington, D.C., and listening to arguments online, it seems like people have been using exclamation marks Perhaps, I'm just, I'm just suggesting this, perhaps they've been using exclamarks inappropriately. That they are using exclamation marks not as astonishment or surprise or excitement, but as a rhetorical device to condemn others. I would suggest that exclamation marks, when pro- properly used, really are there to help us anticipate urgency. There's an urgency to what then is being described. Again, I would say that many use exclamation marks incorrectly rather than urgency, excitement, or surprise, or astonishment. Their use of exclamation marks combined with all capital letters make you realize that their use of an exclamation mark is really a command. This is what they command to have happen. Do this or else. My Aunt Josephine. Aunt Josephine lived just south of Tucson. And we spent a lot of time with Aunt Josephine. And Aunt Josephine was an amazing person. I loved Aunt Josephine. And she would tell amazing stories. She was an amazing quilter and knitter. Uh, She was gracious in how she shared uh, words of wisdom. But in one area uh, I didn't delight in was in having to take care of Aunt Josephine's house when she was away. And in taking care of her house, you would water her plants, of which she had many. You would take care of her cat and, and feed the cat. And you would do other kind of household chores around the house when she was away. 
Being at our house was kind of fun, being away from parents, 14, 15 years old, getting to stay in somebody else's house. It's kind of fun to stay up later than normal watching TV. But what I didn't like was the note that we always received from Aunt Josephine about how to do the instructions that we had memorized by heart. She would basically order us in this letter, all caps, WASH THE DISHES! FEED THE CAT! WATER ALL THE PLANTS, it's all caps, AND DO NOT OVERWATER THE PETUNIAS! Even at age of 14, 15 years old, that kind of letter was a downright demeaning. You know, Aunt Josephine, I'm 14 years old. You've told me 10 million times how to do these things. You don't need to tell me this with exclamation marks as a condemning note. You don't be, have to be dismissive of the way that I might handle things. How do you use exclamation marks? Do they point to astonishment and surprise abiding astonishment? Or are they about following orders? One of the great mystics, that is, one of the human beings in history who perceive God's presence, who perceive God's presence more than most of us do, wrote with a sense of abiding astonishment. And she wrote of the experience of God now. The kingdom of God now. One of these great mystics, and a lot of them in the 11th and 12th centuries, were these women mystics in Central Europe, the Beguines. And one of them was Mechtile, I'm probably saying it wrong, Mechtile of Magdeburg. And Mechtile wrote these beautiful sayings. And she passed on, she lived in almost a monastery kind of life, but she passed on these sayings that were then shared, preached to the outside world, helping to people to live with a sense of, of joy and grace, living in the present now. Now, the interesting thing about the women mystics of the 12th you know, centuries is the kind of social question, like how did all these women all of a sudden become mystics and wanting to live in these kind of cloistered communities? Well, there's a, an interesting explanation of that that's very societal, and that is where were all the men? Where were all the eligible bachelors? Where do you think they were in the 12th century? They had probably died, or they were off to war in the Holy Land. And they didn't come back. And so you had all these women who were vulnerable, who were at risk, and so they found their call in these safe communities that ultimately were called you know, beguine communities. And of course, like any strong witness any visionary, they became a little heretical at times because they were pressing against the authority of the Catholic Church with these direct visions from Jesus. Why could that be heretical? Any guesses why it could be heretical to receive a divine prayer, a divine vision from Jesus? It it, it circumvents the Pope, right? It's all about authority sometimes. And you women, and we got a lot of women out here, you know that your visions can be dangerous in a good way. Well, this, this was really the first European women's political movement, the, the, the Beguines. 
And Mechchild has these sayings that are just beautiful. One of them, she takes on God's perspective. And she writes these prayers from God's perspective. This is one of them. It's entitled, How God Answers the Soul. So it's God speaking here. It is my nature that makes me love you often. For I am love itself. It is in my longing that makes me love you intensely. For I yearn to be loved from the heat and from the heart. It is my eternity that makes me love you long, for I have no end. This is beautiful stuff. For I have no end. I love you intensely. It is my heart. It's my passion. It's kind of sexual language, and that's why they got in trouble probably a little bit. These these women, Vistics, were so in touch with Christ's power, and they conveyed it in such rich and, and, and powerful language that it got them in trouble. And yet, they can teach us something about living in the eternal now. Living into these words of Jesus that we heard this morning. As we listen to those words this morning, as we listen to Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, were these commands that we heard? Were these instructions that we listened to? Were these rules to live by? Was this a cookbook you know, conversation about what it means to be a good Christian? I don't think so. The powerful thing about Jesus is He could not be reduced to a cookbook of instructions. He could not be reduced to a bunch of exclamation marks or grammar on how to live. Instead, Jesus invites us with these beatitudes, these expressions of the eternal God now. Blessed are you poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are not instructions. These are not a code book. But this is a reality to be lived into. Have you ever played that game Clue? That board game Clue? How does that game function? What's, what's, the, what's the rules of that game? Well, you, you, you take your, your marker and you move around this board and you go into different rooms and you discover, you discover who is not the murderer. You discover where the murder didn't take place. You discover what tool didn't kill the person who died. And then the end, after you put together all of these references, you deduce it's, uh, uh, Mr. Mustard in the, the library with the monkey wrench. It's a series of deductions where you follow the pattern. It's a, a, a basically a rule book for what's going to happen in the end. I would suggest to you that the Christian life is not a game of clue. The, Christian life is not a deducing and solving exploration. No. 
the Christian life that, that we're invited to by the Spirit, by Jesus the Christ, is one where we live in the mystery like Mechtile did and these other great mystics. We're invited to wonder, what does it mean to be poor in spirit and how might that be a blessing? And the only way you do that is you don't look back to the past about, well, how do I become poor? Uh, well, being poor means that I must make under $10,000 a year. And, and obviously you can't, it's not about deduction. It's about living in the present now, giving up all things for God. Giving up all things for God. You know, one of the great European men who we owe a lot to in, in psychology is you know, Sigmund Freud, right? Sigmund Freud did a lot to help us understand the relationship of the mind and the heart. You know, the relationship of, of, of transformational events that happened to us in the past and how they still have repercussions and mirrors that, that impact us now. But the problem with, you know, Sigmund Freud, for all the interesting things you learn from him, is his approach to life is that, is that basically his, his diagnosis of humanity is that, well, you are all the things that, that made you and all the experiences that made you good, bad, and ugly, and you must do, you must follow the track of what this and this and this means and you must uncover them and unless you do that work then you can't be here right now i think the problem with that over psychological over over uh you know cycle analysis is that it's it's putting everything on the past rather than the power of the present moment and the power of Jesus Christ in these beatitudes and these sayings where we are with Him now on the mountaintop is that we're called not to think about all the bad stuff that's happened to us in the past or all the hurts that we've gotten. We're called just to remember that God loves us right here, right now. To be in the present moment now. To experience the Spirit now. That's the good news of the Gospel. And it's not about all the stuff that's happened in the past. You can let that go. It's about experiencing Jesus now. Over the last couple of days, I've been, I, I must say, I've been power watching a show. It's called Cheer. Has anybody watched Cheer? Interesting stuff. Cheer is a documentary about a, uh, a team of college cheerleaders. And these are not just your you know, cheerleaders who are with the pom-poms, rah-rah. And that's how it started back in the 1950s or so. These are gymnasts. These are acrobatics. These are daredevils of the extreme magnitude. In fact, I've read somewhere that cheerleaders, especially women cheerleaders, have more injuries than any other athlete in college sports. And it's no wonder to watch this film. They're being thrown as high as the ceiling and then being caught over and over and over and over again. As you watch this film, it's kind of interesting because you know that something as bad is going to happen because you're watching them doing these flips and doing these maneuvers. And as soon as the camera starts looking away and starts looking at something else, you know that you're going to, you're going to hear somebody fall. And they don't want to show you because it's going to be that bad. And it's just, you know, some of the injuries are just, how do they keep on going? How do they, how do they keep on being in the present moment and trusting that other person to catch them? Well, Cheer is about a small town in Mexico that is the home of Navarro Junior College. And they are a fixture at the national 
uh, you know, cheerleaders association national championships. I think they've won 14 national championships since 2001. They are just, they are the team to beat in many ways. And part of that is their coach, uh, Coach Monica. And Coach Monica is just this, this leader of intensity, this leader, she cares deeply of her, of her athletes, she cares for them, uh, and yet she's asking them to push themselves to the ninth degree in terms of risk, of uh, the extreme edges of, of how to put on these, these, uh, these throws and these pyramids. These pyramids are not just like how I used to do them as a kid, where we'd kneel on all fours and be on each other's back. No, they're throwing these women and then catching them and putting them on their shoulders and then throwing another woman in and then putting, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. How do they do it? And then as you watch this documentary, a lot is about the athletes themselves, the college athletes themselves, and you hear their stories. These are junior college athletes in Texas. They're from a lot of different small towns around the country, big towns around the country, and a common element in all their lives is that they've experienced much pain. They've experienced the reality of the Beatitudes, that sense of mourning, that sense of grief, that sense of loss. You know, one child, uh, an African-American man who grew up uh, in Illinois, he was always the kid who was a little bit different. He was a, a big a big man, African-American man, and he wanted to be a cheerleader. And I can't imagine the amount of torment that he would have received from the other uh, classmates of his. A boy doing cheerleading, and you're so big. He weighed in high school, I think, 325 pounds. This was not your typical cheerleader. In common language, he must have gotten a lot of stuff. Plus, plus, he was, he was gay. He was gay. Can you imagine the amount of grief he would have received if it's a typical American high school? If you're a gay African American cheerleader and you're a man? And yet, his laughter, his laughter, when you hear his laughter, his love, it's astonishing. It's amazing. It, it demands an exclamation mark. The love in his heart for other people. And you hear his story, and when he's, I think, a junior in high school, he's living in poverty, he's living from hotel to hotel, car to car, you know, cousin house to cousin house. His mother dies. And his gymnast family, mostly white, urban, I should say, uh, 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 suburban families, they take him in. And they, they delight in him and they make them one of their children knowing that they can never replace his own mother. And yet they just delight in him and love him. And as you watch this story, as you hear the stories of the coach and the athletes, the men and the women, there is a resiliency, there is a determination, there is an astonishment that demands an exclamation mark. And I encourage you to watch this film. If you don't have the time to watch it or don't have Netflix or whatever it is, I'll tell you the end of the story in coffee hour. But it's an amazing story. And, and you, you think to yourself, well, they're just going to breeze right through. They're the best in the country. They've got some of the best athletes in the world. They got the ringers. They got, they got the best of the best. And yet, of course, you're always faced with adversity and most importantly, injuries. On this day, know that we're called to live in the moment. Because when we face those adversities, 
We're not called to look to the past and to think about all the stuff that we could have and should have and would have done differently. No, we're called to remember that God is with us now. That God is present with us in the bread and in the cup. That God, in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of this meal, that God is with us now. We can leave behind the fears. We can leave behind the tribulations. We can leave behind that sense that, oh, we got to do X, Y, or Z to be a good person. No. It's about relationship. It's not about being right all the time. It's about being in relationship with the Lord our God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.